time he started his birther campaign against Obama uh, years ago, we've had this fake news. But what he's done effectively is to turn that around to make uh, a lot of people, especially people in his camp, think that everything that mainstream media puts out that's against him or his policies is fake news. We found out that in the last year, Wells Fargo opened 1.5 million additional unauthorized accounts. We also found out that in the past couple years, they have charged 800,000 people for unwanted auto insurance. They didn't tell Congress about that, which could actually be a criminal violation, punishable by up to five years in prison. By ignoring the scores of massacres of black people, of Native Americans, and, and mm. all the rest, and acting as if, once again, this is a, quote, white man's country, unquote, and only incidents that involve the disproportionate slayings of those who are defined as white are worthy of being highlighted. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance and Alternative News from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. And a recurring theme on today's show is news, media, information, and voice. Who gets to be heard? What stories, narratives, lives are lifted up as worthy? And what lies are lifted up as truth? Gerald Horn is in the house with new books, including The Rise and Fall of the Associated Negro Press. Claude Burnett's Pan-African News and the Jim Crow Paradox. For nearly 50 years, the description of the book goes, the Chicago-based Associated Negro Press ANP fought racism at home and grew into an international news organization abroad. At its head stood founder Claude Barnett, one of the most influential African-Americans of his day and a gifted, if unofficial, diplomat who forged links with figures as diverse as Jawaharlal Nehru, Zora Neale Hurston, and Richard Nixon. Also, media critic Harry Amana breaks down the Trump effect on news organizations and Sankofa video and books launched by filmmakers Haile Garima and Shirikiana Garima launches its 20-year celebration. All that and more is coming up in our PAC show, but first our headlines. Now, this week's news starts with the March for Racial Justice and the March for Black Women. Chantel James attended and filed this report. Thousands of marchers from all across the country convened in Lincoln Park this past Saturday for the March for Racial Justice. The event had been sparked in the minds of its organizers by the tragic white supremacy rally of Charlottesville this August. And their work took on new and increased relevance in the wake of so many of this current presidential administration's disturbing actions, words, and policies. After a rally in the park, protesters waited to be joined by the members of the March for Black Women, a concurrent social justice action. With numbers now swelled, the march took the streets along a route leading to the National Mall, where there were additional speakers. The Reverend Graylin Hagler, pastor of Plymouth Congregational United Church of Christ, rallied those gathered in the park. 
It was an incredible march through my city, Washington, D.C., that is the last remaining colony on the mainland of the United States. And being a colony on the mainland of the United States, our heart goes out to another colony that is called Puerto Rico and the people who are suffering today because of an ineptness of this government to serve the people of Puerto Rico. If you're from out of state, you don't realize that we really don't have voting rights in Washington, D.C. That that people in that building behind us are able to impose any kind of law that they see fit on the citizens of the District of Columbia. But let me point out something. That's a house that was built by the hands and backs of slaves. The White House that sits behind us is a house that was built by slaves. Where the archives sit, that was an auction block where they sold off slaves. And what I'm trying to point out is slavery is the foundation of America. It was founded upon slavery. Slaves enriched this country so that folks can enjoy white privilege today. It is because of the labor of slaves, my ancestors, those who went before me. And so when we call our Black Lives Matter, it is because historically black lives have never mattered in this country and to the people of this country. When we say black women matter, it's because black women have never mattered to this country or the history of this country. When we deal with police shootings and killings, the killings of like Terrence Sterling here in Washington, D.C., the old story, unarmed, and killed by the Metropolitan Police Department. Not convicted, not indicted, never missed a paycheck, and never had to go off the force. Or Alonzo Smith, who was killed by special police here in Washington, D.C., and no one has been held accountable. Or just a few miles from here, you had Richard Collins III, who was a Bowie State University student and was visiting people at the College Park campus of the University of Maryland, and a white supremacist came along and stabbed him to death days before he was to graduate, days before he was to go into the U.S. military as a lieutenant, and you didn't hear crap from this White House. You didn't hear crap from this so-called president. Stand up and hold on to your power. March and continue to change things around. God bless you. In addition to the march, a vigil at the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial was also held at sundown. From Capitol Hill, this is Chantal James. Chantel was also on the ground on October 4th as hundreds marched in solidarity with the 500 undocumented immigrants around the country who have been detained in recent raids targeting sanctuary cities. Washington, D.C. faith leaders and citizens of all demographics came out on Wednesday the 4th to denounce ICE activity in the city. Recently, nearly 500 people have been detained in ICE raids, with 14 of them coming from D.C. Protesters met at the headquarters of the National Immigration and Customs Enforcement, then marched to Mayor Muriel Bowser's office to demand that she denounce Operation Safe City and use her leverage to have the 14 D.C. detainees returned. Dandy Sendejas of La Colectiva, one of many organizations behind the action, spoke with us about the protest demands. So, especially right now with this administration and with this agency that we know that they're 
agenda is part of a racist nativist agenda, right? That is super anti-immigrant and just hell-bent on detaining and deporting as many of our loved ones as possible. Um, that's why we're here, right? Because we know we need to stand up. From downtown D.C., this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantal. Well, D.C. Divest was one of many organizations that protested on Capitol Hill this week as Wells Fargo CEO Tim Sloan testified before Congress, telling lawmakers that Wells Fargo has improved since it was caught setting up more than 2 million unauthorized credit card accounts. Groups were also on hand targeting Wells Fargo for its proven track record of racial discrimination in its funding of the Dakota Access Pipeline and other controversial fossil fuel projects. Outside the hearing room, Amanda Warner of Public Citizen and Americans for Financial Reform was dressed as the rich man from the Monopoly board game and told reporters that Wells Fargo's misdeeds are even worse than previously disclosed. We found out that in the last year, Wells Fargo opened 1.5 million additional unauthorized accounts. We also found out that in the past couple years, they have charged 800,000 people for unwanted auto insurance. They didn't tell Congress about that, which could actually be a criminal violation, punishable by up to five years in prison. During last year's Senate testimony, former Wells CEO John Stump withered under tough questioning, and Massachusetts Democrat Elizabeth Warren accused him of gutless leadership. He resigned less than a month later. Warren has also urged the Federal Reserve to remove all members of the Wells Fargo Board of Directors who served during the time the fake accounts were created. Well, the horrific mass shooting in Las Vegas on the heels of the still unfolding tragedy in Puerto Rico has left little space for many of the important issues here in the U.S. and abroad. And so now we turn to our geopolitical analyst, the prolific author and activist, Professor Gerald Horn, to help us unpack what is really going on. So, Gerald, as Trump has been tweeting insults and tossing rolls of paper towels to Puerto Ricans, who he only recently learned are American citizens, there are actually seismic shifts happening internationally. So let's start with the Iran nuclear deal. What happened yesterday? Well, this is significant. Apparently, Mr. Trump is going to move to decertify this deal, which will then toss it into Congress, which is dominated by the Republican Party and is expected, I would assume, to follow up on its decertification. But keep in mind that this Iran deal is not simply a bilateral deal between the United States and Iran. It's a multilateral deal that includes the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, including Russia and China not to mention Germany. And they have already indicated that they do not intend to follow Mr. Trump with regard to his decertification. So this could lead to further isolation of the United States internationally. It could worsen already tenuous relations between Germany. Recall that Mr. Trump has repeatedly insulted Chancellor Merkel. And this could further harm Berlin-Washington relations. So this is a big deal. And it's something that needs to be followed very closely and carefully because to the extent that Mr. Trump can be isolated internationally, to that extent, it will give us leverage to isolate him domestically. Well, speaking of domestic issues, uh, there's another deal in a court case. Uh, Trump is backing Boeing, the airplane manufacturer, against a Canada-based airplane manufacturer. And the UK has chimed in on the case and jobs are on the line. What's, what's it all about? 
Well, this is also important because Bombardier, which is the Canadian firm in question, also has major facilities in Great Britain. And with Mr. Trump putting his thumb on the scales in favor of Boeing, this is harming relations between London and Washington at a time when Theresa May, the conservative prime minister of Britain, needs all the help she can get. That is to say that the Labour Party is surging under the left-wing leadership of Jeremy Corbyn, and Mrs. May had staked her tenure on negotiating better relations with Washington to substitute for withdrawing from the European Union. So this may help to aid the Labour Party attempt to seize power from Mrs. May, which once again would be a step forward for progressive forces in North America as well. And likewise, with regard to Canada, uh, Mr. Trump has alienated Ottawa by seeking to withdraw from the North American Free Trade Agreement. Keep in mind that Canada also has offered an olive branch to U.S. trade unions by offering to put on the table in these negotiations about NAFTA the so-called right-to-work laws or right-to-work-for-less laws that have proliferated in the United States of America, and that makes for an objective alliance between Ottawa and U.S. labor unions. The only thing left is for the U.S. labor unions to basically accept Ottawa's offer, and once again, this is good news. Staying in Europe, what do you think the fallout is from the from Germany's elections and the re-election of Angela Merkel as chancellor? Well, I'm afraid that this is not good news, particularly the fact that the neo-Nazi party, the Alternative for Germany party, got about 13% of the vote. Uh, this helps to put wind in the sails of neo-fascism in the United States of America, a subject which, to your credit, this program has been talking about well before others. And combined with the fact that neo-Nazis are also on the march in Austria, and also, I'm afraid to say, are on the march in this hemisphere in Brazil, uh, this is disastrous news, in fact. There's a candidate in next year's election, Mr. Bolsonaro, who makes Donald Trump seem like a leader of the Black Panther Party. I mean, he's, he's well to the right of the Republican Party, which is saying something, given the fact that Brazil as a country is well to the left of the United States. He's anti-labor, he's anti-LBGT, he's racist. As a matter of fact, he makes Trump look like a progressive on that score. And apparently he's doing well, believe it or not, in terms of the polls, which has something to do with the fact that Lula da Silva, the former and perhaps future leader of Brazil, has been fighting a court case, and there is even a suspicion that he may not be able to run as a result of this court case. Okay, well, we'll definitely have to, we'll have to keep a watch on that for sure. Uh, so most of these things that you're talking about aren't really making the headlines, and they're little known, but what is your, what we call the little known news for this week? Well, all of us have been following with bated breath the confrontation with North Korea over the nuclear question. But I think part of the subtext of this confrontation with North Korea is the fact that Washington is increasingly upset with South Korea. That is to say that LG, Lucky Gold Star, and Samsung are providing ever stiffer competition, not only to Apple Computer, but also to Whirlpool, the 
dishwasher manufacturer headquartered in the U.S. Midwest. And Mr. Trump is very upset with this competition, just like he is not very happy with the fact that Huawei, the Chinese manufacturer, is providing ever stiffer competition to Apple as well. In fact, a recent poll suggested that Chinese consumers, who are the major consumers of smartphones in the world today, or increasingly turning away from Apple. And so I guess we should have a stock tip now, which is might be a good time to short your Apple uh, stock investments or even dump Apple stock investments, given that, that kind of news. And so this North Korean confrontation in some ways is mana from heaven for the United States because it can pressure the South Korean and Chinese firms under the guise of seeking to protect uh, international peace and security by pressuring North Korea. Well, I want to finish up with my own little known news, and that is about one of your new books, The Rise and Fall of the Associated Negro Press, Claude Barnett's Pan-African News and the Jim Crow Paradox. And so the description goes, for nearly 50 years, the Chicago-based Associated Negro Press, ANP, fought racism at home and grew into an international news organization abroad. At its head stood founder Claude Barnett, one of the most influential African-Americans of his day, and a gifted, if unofficial, diplomat who forged links with figures as diverse as Jawa Harlow Nehru, Zerino Hurston, and Richard Nixon. So I know you'll stay with us to talk more about the book later, you know, which is this fascinating weaving of biography, U.S. and international politics, and all these historical figures. And, you know, I feel like as history is illuminated, then the present is illuminated. Well, one more footnote. I, I, I should also mention that another book just dropped this week, Storming the Heavens, African-Americans in the Early Fight for the Right to Fly, published by Black Classic Press in Baltimore, by the way. Oh, okay. Uh, under the leadership of Paul Coates. Yeah. And it tells the story of the black American obsession with aviation after the launching of this industry in the beginning of the 20th century in terms of Marcus Garvey's organization, in terms of sending pilots to Ethiopia to repel Italian and fascist invaders in the 1930s, in terms of trying to avoid being Jim Crowed on airlines and all the rest, and how that this culminates in 1957 with the Soviet launching of Sputnik, which helps the United States to rethink its whole, whole approach to aeronautics and leads to a kind of desegregation of that industry and of the United States generally, uh, post-1957. Mm. So that, that book just dropped uh, within the last 24 to 48 hours. Wow. Uh, so thank you, Gerald. And we'll, we'll come back later in the show to talk more about the Associated Negro Press, the rise and fall of the Associated Negro Press. Thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me. When we come back, a special treat. Extended Conversations on Culture and Media with Sharikiana Garima and Harry Amana. Stay with us. Can't hold me down, there's no gravity in my universe Those rules don't exist to me, you don't believe me, you can search Feeling bittersweet, now it's cavities in your tooth that hurts Cause it doesn't work when you're grabbing me, trying to pull me down The earth backstabbing me as I prove my worth If you bite in my style, then who was first? If you bite my dust, then who was first? Geek down, trying to act wild, don't make it worse I speak the truth when I spit, call it a naked verse St. John, when I spit, let me take you to church uh, Amen, amen, trying to intimidate me And you just amen 
and you dealing with an ill super saiyan with a wide vision in the game plan call that full brain John Illa J and see that's my full name Grey bonds on steroids that's my full swing and I'm out ghetto superstar spit stupid boss uh, yeah Now this week in culture and media, in theaters, I saw and enjoyed the movie Faces, Places, which was a note of reality and sanity in today's contentious media environment of spin. French photographers Agnès Varda and J.R. collaborated to travel throughout France, taking large-scale black and white portraits and pasting them up as public art in places that don't make this country's usual picturesque travel real. So there was a role of abandoned miners' housing, a rural cluster of unfinished cottages, a chemical factory, and a loading dock. While the selection in places and topics provides an alternative grassroots narrative, this documentary is also about the friendship that develops between the artists as well as the insecurities and strengths of each, with the octogenarian Varda contributing more insights into class and gender for their creative joint partnership. I would say that if you enjoy movies as a means to see the world in new ways, you will definitely enjoy the movie Faces Places. I also spoke to Sharikiana Garima. In D.C., Sankofa Video and Books was founded by Holly Garima and Sharikiana Garima, and they're gearing up to celebrate their 20th anniversary. I spoke to her about the couple's original vision and how the business of black movies and books has changed in two decades. The bookstore was named, of course, after the movie Sankofa. And it really came about because of the movie Sankofa. The support for the movie and the distribution of the movie independently was really, you know, a grassroots support effort. And that's how the movie got seen, really, because no distributors would would push the movie. So that grassroots base came out in abundance uh, in different cities across the country. And um, that's what made it possible not only to distribute the film, but then to go on and say, okay, well, let's see if we can just, you know, get a building. You know, we don't have enough money to own a building, but let's just try it. You know, let's use the guts (laughs) that we got um, and the incentive that we got from the distribution of the film and have a building to distribute and produce more films. And then on a, a second level, the bookstore came. We just said, you know, there's nice space in here. We can sell our films on video and do it in the context of, of great black literature. So that's how Sankofa Bookstore came about 20 years ago. And, you know, at that time, we actually we rented VHS tapes. And um, some of y'all might not know what those are. <laughs> but 
Oh, I, I got some of those VHS tapes there, so I know. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so we rented those in the days of video rentals, and then we started just selling, and then we just converted completely to DVD sales of video of our, our titles and other titles by people of color. And over time, uh, we've done less of that. Most of our sales now are in books, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a plethora of titles out there by people of color. There are. So I want to ask you about that. I want to go back and and hit a thing about the DVDs, but the whole thing about the building, were you able to actually ever purchase the building or do you still have to rent the building? Well, we own the building as much as you can own a building when the bank you know, has the mortgage. Exactly. Uh, and um, so, yes, we are attempting to buy this building. And I guess, as you know, it was a blessing that we made that decision because in an era of gentrification, you know, even owning is not guaranteed, but not owning is surely, you know, an easy way to blow you off. Uh, exactly. Of the, yeah. the surface of the DC uh, map. So, yeah, we have it. We've got it by, you know, a little more than the skin of our teeth from one year to the next. But, yeah, we can say that we have a stake. Tell me a little bit about how the market changed so that movie rentals and then DVD sales really weren't as, I guess, lucrative or as sensible as before. Um, Well, you know, that's the thing. I mean, books and movies you know if you look at sort of an overall market one might think that they're on the decline because you know you can get everything online you can you know just get it sent from amazon you can download it and pay-per-view and all that stuff but in reality bookstores have made a comeback and in reality we still have a tremendous market for DVDs and people, you know, our customers aren't believing that really. (laughs) But because we're, especially in our case, we're in a market that's really hungry for titles, both on film and books, by people of color. And it's not easy to get some of those titles. And for us, I think we, we can do a much better job in getting more titles on DVD. In fact, that's my next push, you know, in my list of things to do, to do a better job of that. And they disappear because, they, you know, they may have been online at one time, but they disappear because the forces of the market. But we can remain steady because we know our market. We know who's going to come in our store, who's going to be looking for these materials. And so we don't have to worry so much about that. And same thing with books. You know, we sell classic black books. We sell new titles. We sell children's titles, old and new. We have a platform for new authors and new filmmakers to come and have an audience so they can grow and develop as artists. And so we're kind of on the edge or kind of in the shadow of the larger industry, which suits us just fine because that's where we want to be, you know, because black people have been marginalized anyway. So while we're in that margin, let's get something done. So now I know you added a coffee bar. Tell me about that decision and the impact that has had. That was a, a wonderful addition. We did that about four, maybe five years or six years after we opened. And we don't own that. We rent it to a, a company called Rai, and they named it Sankofa Cafe. And so... It's, it's a wonderful collaboration because they've named their sandwiches after filmmakers. 
black filmmakers or uh, uh, filmmakers of color, uh, they keep the theme of everything that we try to do here. They uh, make sure that they carry wholesome ingredients and, you know, wonderful spices, you know, kind of indicative of this world of color that we represent. And, um, you know, it's been a really, really, really nice collaboration. So their customers are our customers. You know, they may come in for a coffee, uh, which has a fabulous reputation. (laughs) And then, you know, kind of wander into the bookstore and uh, our customers coming for a book may get a cup of coffee or a sandwich or a wrap. So... It's been, you know, a nice collaboration. We have also a deck in the back of the bookstore now. So you can kind of read and eat and sip uh, outside, either in the front or the back. So those have been great additions. And finally, what, what are you, your challenges and goals going forward? Well, I'll tell you, Esther, thanks for asking that. One of the challenges is trying to figure out a way to institutionalize Sankofa so that it can stay around despite the ups and downs of this gentrified world. Right now, our taxes are almost $30,000 a year. So sometimes it feels like we're in business to make sure we pay our taxes. That's property tax, thirty, almost $30,000 a year. Wow. So we pay a higher tax than some of the businesses that are given tax incentives that have a revenue base four, five, six, ten times bigger than ours. Right. Hmm. So that's our challenge, trying to just, you know, make the city kind of appreciate us a little bit more, city meaning the government, trying to say, you know, look, maybe we have something to offer D.C., maybe we've, you know, been trying to do that for a while. Is there a way that we can be, have a less hostile relationship so that, you know, because we really do, I think, if you talk about enriching a customer base, that's all that we've been trying to do all this time. You know, we offer a place for, for musicians to come and, and play their music. We offer a place for open mic, you know, watermelon day, <clears throat> storytelling. <clears throat> so I, I'm not quite sure how that wouldn't be embraced uh, really actively by a city that was, you know, conscious about making those institutions cr- help to create an nurturing environment because I mean, you can offer gentrification or this, this trend brings in new, you know, upstarts, new businesses, new cafes, bars, beer, whatever, breweries. And they say that, yeah, they're enriching the D.C., you know, what D.C. has to offer. But wait a second. So does that imply that D.C. never had anything to offer? That the black institutions that have been here weren't offering something and they weren't mainstays to making sure that the D.C. community was enriched and growing? and thriving, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's a unspoken tenant, and I have to say, of white supremacy that just says, well, you know, nobody lived there before I got there. Hmm. So any, any final thoughts? I know you have a, a big uh, opening on Monday with ta Coates' new book, but what are some of your other goals? Well, we are happy to have WPFW, first of all, as a media partner for that for Tanahasi's book opening on Monday. Um, it's, we'd like to use every opportunity we can to push WPFW because, you know, speak, talking about enriching a community, I'm not sure most of us would be sane <laughs> if we didn't have WPFW and shows like yours, Esther. So that's one thing that I, I appreciate. And what the next thing I think that we are 
focusing on is to strengthen our community alliances because it, it really is a time to kind of gather the wagons together for black businesses in D.C. Um, it's overdue and some of the destructive results of gentrification might have been avoided had we had stronger uh, alliances in the first place. So that's something that I look forward to, to focusing on more in uh, 2018. And just also just becoming, you know, strengthening our infrastructure and putting some things in place that help to institutionalize the place. Because, you know, I'm not going to be here forever. My husband's not going to be here forever. And, right, um, right, right. You know, yeah, yeah we just want to make sure this thing sticks around for a while. All right. Well, I've been speaking to Sharikiana Garima, uh, co-owner of Sankofa Video and Books. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Esther. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. And in this segment, we're going to talk about media. And the media landscape has always been a minefield of exclusion, misrepresentation, and spin. But the last year has made this minefield even more confusing and precarious. And joining me now to discuss the information industry in the United States is Harry Amana, Professor Emeritus of Journalism at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thank you for joining me today, Harry. My pleasure. Well, to start, you know, what do you think are some of the urgent issues about coverage and messaging so far during the Trump presidency? Well, I mean, one of the urgencies is to not be a lapdog to the Trump tweets. I mean, he's, he's actually uh, taken over the prime media and prime space on timeshare. Every time he tweets something, it becomes a story. So he's absolutely controlling the media. And, for example, the only time that we fail to pay attention to him is when there's a national disaster recently. And so when we had the uh, storms in uh, Texas and and the hurricanes through the Caribbean, those stories uh, trumped Trump. But the mainstream media, well, none of the media, period. I mean, I think uh, with the exception of... um, independent shows like yours or like uh, Democracy Now. With those exceptions, everybody seems to be following the same, the same path. And what happens is smaller movements get overlooked unless there's some violence that takes place. The, a growing dissension over Trump administration policies get overlooked. They don't get the coverage that they deserve. And so we're sort of trapped in his world. And nobody seems to be fighting hard to get out of it. And then, of course, he's he's created this whole notion of fake media. And it has been fake media, but a lot of it has been his fake media. I mean, you know, he from the time he started his birther campaign against Obama uh, years ago, we've had this fake news. But what he's done effectively is to turn that around to make uh, a lot of people, especially people in his camp, think that everything that mainstream media puts out that's against him or his policies is fake news. And so even when there are instances where there's documented proof that he said a certain thing or gone a certain way, 
he'll get on and say that it's fake media, and I think his followers, they believe that. So I don't think that media has been effective at all during his campaign, so f- during his uh, administration so far. One of the things that, I mean, you mentioned the fake news uh, issue, and I guess one problem is that part of what he says is true. Like, you know, I guess a, a broken clock being right two times a day. So that very often the things that the media has always been guilty of in terms of parodying this neoliberal line, of kind of pumping up wars to, uh, I guess, get ratings. A lot of those things are true, you know, and the fact that the media has kind of fallen into this really dangerous trap of now quoting the CIA and intelligence, so-called intelligence agencies as kind of like the, the arbiters of truth. <laughs> and so th- that kind of furthers the trap, I can see, because, you know, since when are we going to say that, you know, the CIA who who you know, took us into Iraq and uh, fomented coups and, and assassinations around the world is the arbiter of what's true. By the way, the Ken Burns theories on Vietnam just showed on uh, public television. It was very, very timely. Because what it, what it did was it looked at step by step everything that was taking place in country, in the Vietnam, but also in Washington and behind the scenes. And the numerous times that our government gave public statements about the war, that was just total lies. And how they, behind the scenes, they would say, this is an unwinnable war, but we can't say that, we can't let this go. They had this domino theory, of course, that one thing would fall after another and everything would be communist. But they had something to hook on, it was, it was communism. And they had a fear, and what they did was, they were able to use that to hide the truth. I mean, eventually it caught up on them. But you can draw direct parallels to that and the kinds of things that are going on now with this uh, whole emphasis on ISIS and Middle East terrorism. Right. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me at all if we had the exact same kinds of things going on. Our government is, (laughs) our government lies to us. Our government has a history of not telling the truth. Our government has a history of, of exploiting certain things that they know the public will have a knee-jerk response to. And, and so if you look at that, and then you look at some of, some of what's going on now, and again, thanks to the Internet, everything is out there. We just have to look for it. If you only look at what you see on television, then you're not going to have what you need. So the trick is to be independent enough and resourceful enough to ask the right questions and look for the right places to get the answers. The mainstream media is not doing it. I've recently been listening to a North Carolina NAACP leader, William Barber. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Oh, no, I've spoken to him on the show. Yeah, and he's getting ready to try to relaunch a poor people's campaign, pick up uh, King's message. And one of the things that he said recently on uh, Democracy Now! was that he wants to emphasize the whole voter suppression movement that's taking place in the country. He says, and I think you, when you and I have talked about this, that he says we're having a conversation about Russian hacking, but we're not having a conversation about voter suppression. Right, which, right. Which is a real threat to democracy. 
and which is what really suppressed the vote and really impacted the last election, not, you know, some Facebook ads or whatever the latest thing that they're on right now. I kind of lost count. But anyway, did you want to finish that point about Barbara? Or? He's been having these regular weekly meetings in North Carolina. I just left North Carolina, resettled him in Philadelphia for a while. But he had these moral Mondays. And then there's a, a group of people who go out to the state legislature every Tuesday, every Tuesday with a theme and they protest. They, the Dreamers Act, they, they had a few hundred people out there just recently. You know, when they do things on health care, it might be fewer people out. But there's a group of dedicated folks in North Carolina who go out there every week. And right. they never, you know, they never get any coverage um, or rarely get covered. I think they did get some coverage when they did the Dreamers uh, support. But I think Barbara's going to be an interesting person to watch. He's getting ready. He, he, he's not going to run for re-election of the NAACP in North Carolina. He's getting ready to go on a 15-city tour where he's trying to mobilize and get people interested in this poor people's campaign movement. Yeah, he did a watch night service here. So he brought in the new year here in D.C. And mm-hmm. that's something that we covered, uh, the fact that it was happening and then some, some coverage out of it. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the, the television show I was trying to remember was Vice. I think mm. that's. I think I think that Vice does some some interesting things, and they've got a whole panoply of, of things that they cover. But I think sometimes they hit the nail on the head too with the kind of coverage that they give to some of the stuff that's going on. Yeah, it's interesting because you mentioned two shows that I know we had discussed on the show and had a little different spin on because a lot of people actually who really look at Vice see it very tracking very closely to U.S. policy abroad like in terms of a lot of the things that they cover they don't veer too far from what they call the deep state (laughs) is their worldview and it's interesting that you mentioned the Ken Burns Vietnam documentary because it's really gotten a lot of criticism from progressives uh, in terms of it also kind of parodying a lot of the administration view And, you know, giving some some maybe possible credence to the idea of the domino theory and like the Red Scare. So it's interesting. I know I haven't looked at it, but a number of people who I've spoken to or that have been interviewed for Pacifica have been critical of it. Mm -hmm. Well, what got me with it was the revealing of what was going on behind the scenes, how the government lied. Uh, how they put people in, uh, put troops into war situations that they couldn't win only for publicity. That's the kind of thing that I paid attention to. And I, I think that if people looked at that, average people looked at that, people who, you know, younger people who didn't know anything about the war, I think a lot of them would be shocked or maybe even surprised at how blatantly the government lied and manipulated and might give them some insight into how government might be doing the same things now. Probably is doing the same things now. And so okay. that's, that's what interested me in the Ken Burns piece, that, that revelation. Because a lot of that stuff came from uh, Freedom of Information stuff and stuff that was archived but never, that was never uh, publicized. Even though, I mean, we knew it. But it was it was really interesting to see it on a at a prime time viewing. 
you know, there was one thing that I was going to ask you about, but I think we've kind of covered it a little bit. And that's really the media falling into a trap, really, of this tradition of reporting what the president says. So that goes back to your original comment about the tweets. I remember when I was uh, still in college, I had an internship here in D.C., and we had to do these papers every, almost every day. And since I was a journalism major, mine related to news coverage. And I was complaining that the newspapers that I had to survey basically said, most of the stories start, the White House said today. <laughs> right. So, you know, as a student activist, I would be very frustrated because I would say, well, how can we ever get our story out if the New York Times, the Washington Post and I don't know what other, maybe the L.A. Times, because that's where the internship was. You know, if all these papers are just reporting what the White House says, you know, how can we ever as people get our story out? So it really hasn't changed that much, but it's really ratcheted up in the era of tweeting. <laughs> So that now they're reporting on what the president has tweeted and it's very top down and it doesn't give space to the grassroots at all. No, and unless and, and until or whenever there's a, a violence or some confrontation with the with the mainstream, then it gets covered. Uh, and, right. And, and no, yeah. which is one of the things that was interesting about Barbara's comments, Barbara said that he he plans to he he wants to organize and he he wants to he wants his demonstrations to be peaceful but he wants them to be confrontational which is a kind of an interesting perspective i mean when you are confrontational what does what what ha, what does the right wing do yeah you know it'd be very interesting because you know what we saw in charlottesville was the the clergy um, before the actual later on melee and the you know vehicular manslaughter, what we saw earlier in the day was the clergy being confronted and um, by some accounts you know threatened with bodily harm by uh, these neo Nazis. And if it wasn't for Antifa, according to Cornell West, they would have been you know badly hurt if 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 not killed. And so I hope that Reverend Barber has a strategy for, if he has a, a strategy for confrontation, he has a strategy for self-protection. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's what I was thinking when, uh, when he made those statements. I was uh, wondering, uh, what's his, his backup plan, in other words? And the other thing is, uh, how is it going to be covered? Well, these are... They're definitely weighty topics and, and interesting ideas and, and just information that you've brought to us today. I've been speaking with Harry Amana, Professor Emeritus of Journalism at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thank you, Harry. Thank you. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averman. As I promised, Gerald Horn has stayed with us to talk about 
his two new books, but we're really focusing on the rise and fall of the Associated Negro Press, Claude Barnett's Pan-African News and the Jim Crow Paradox. I guess, you know, because I'm a journalist and this history is so fascinating to me. Also, you know, we're really kind of dealing with media a lot today. And we're talking about how uh, we're living in almost an unprecedented media environment where fact is somehow indistinguishable from <laughs> from fiction, and you know people are really trying to understand what is really the real news and what's alternative news and what's alternative facts. And so, any type of discussion about journalism is really interesting to me. So, let me ask you, what drew you to the topic? Well. For a historian, you need sources, and I guess it's fair to say that what drew me to this topic was the fact that there's a massive archive of the Associated Negro Press, which is partially on microfilm, which means it's available everywhere, and partially on paper at the Chicago History Museum, of course, in the state of Illinois. And in sifting through these records, I could tell that I could sculpt this piece of clay into a book and I thought it was also important to tell the story of this major black institution, which was in existence from approximately 1918 to 1967, but then fell victim as integration took hold in the United States of America. And that's one of the morals of the story that I'm telling. Uh, that is to say, uh, another story about how a black institution fell victim to integration as opposed to desegregation, that is to say, knocking down the walls of Jim Crow and apartheid. And then it's, it's a story about Claude Burnett, which is a story about a man who was a major investor and, and quite affluent for his times, but also had a progressive streak, an anti-colonial progressive streak. But that too fell victim to the changing events in the United States of America, that is to say the advent of the Cold War and the Red Scare. And it was necessary, he thought, to move away from seeking to influence U.S. foreign policy to seeking to uh, shape who were the people who were to execute U.S. foreign policy and having more integration of black Americans into the higher ranks of the U.S. diplomatic corps. And so this book also tells a story about the history of this important period from the end of World War I to the 1960s. And it tells a kind of alternative history because the Associated Negro Press had journalists all over the world, not to mention in the four corners of the United States of America, and they were oftentimes fouling stories that the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Associated Press neglected. And mm. so it was possible for me to tell an alternative history just through examining the dispatches of these journalists, who included, by the way, people like Zora Neale Hurston and Richard Wright and Langston Hughes and leading journalists like Charlene Hunter-Galt and C. Gerald Frazier, who's right for the New York Times, uh, Julian Bond, etc. So uh, I, I put all of this together, and now it's come out in the book. You know, when I looked at the time span for... The A&P, I realized that it covered the the era and year of the Tulsa, they call it the Tulsa race riot, but we really want to call it the Tulsa massacre or the pogrom of the black community there that was called Black Wall Street. And 
I thought about it recently in relationship to the Las Vegas shooting because, you know, this horrific shooting has been called the single worst, like, mass, I'm not sure what is mass shooting or, or you know, single most violent, you know, um, incident here in the United States. It's been kind of repeated over and over, but in that repeating of that description, like, Incidents like the the massacre of of black people in Tulsa in 1921 is forgotten, and there were other also other riots, the the draft riots during the Civil War, the the Wilmington riots, where scores of black people were killed by whites uh, in these these so called riots that were really massacres in the black community. Well, the reporting of the tragic killings in Las Vegas. In some ways, it reminds me of an attempt to sort of implant fallaciously a kind of virgin birth of the origins of the United States of America. That is to say, by ignoring the scores of massacres of black people, of Native Americans, and and Mm. all the rest, and acting as if, once again, this is a, quote, white man's country, unquote, and only incidents that involve the disproportionate slayings of those who are defined as white or worthy of being highlighted. I should also mention, parenthetically, that with regard to the Tulsa slayings in 1921, the attack on the so-called Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that's also represented in my Storming the Heavens book, The Black Americans in Aviation, because this was one of the first times that an airplane was used in an offensive manner to drop bombs on a civilian population. Uh, And of course, the very first time takes place in North Africa, Libya, in 1911. And there were contemporaneous bombings from the air in communities in Southern Africa by the racist authorities uh, in the early 1920s as well. And of course, you could fast forward to the bombing in Philadelphia in the 1980s of the MOVE compound uh, with the bombing taking place in the air. So this... Uh, You know, I actually didn't know until I was just reading preparing for this segment that, I mean, maybe I didn't know, maybe I knew, but I forgot that they were actually people flew private planes to drop bombs and other incendiary objects in on the black community in Tulsa, and that these people were working hand-in-hand with the mob to destroy the community. Well, once again, this ties into this book, Storming the Heavens, because that Tulsa incident, helped to galvanize gathering sentiment amongst the black community in the United States that it was in their interest to learn more about aviation, this relatively new invention. And this helps to contribute to an obsession with aviation that culminates in many black people moving heaven and earth to learn how to fly planes, with many of them then decamping to Ethiopia in the 1930s, where they assist the Ethiopians in the attempt to repel the invaders from fascist Italy, and black Americans were essential to the founding of Ethiopian Airways, which is the largest carrier by far to this very day on the African continent, and in a pan-African manner is knitting together the entire continent so that sooner rather than later, if you want to go from Nairobi to Lagos or Nairobi to Accra, Ghana, uh, you don't have to necessarily fly through London or Paris. You can take Ethiopian Airways. And so 
this is a very important story, I, I must say, this question of black people in aviation in the first half of the 20th century. So, any final thoughts before we wrap up? Well, I know that On the Ground is a show that's listened to intently all over the world. And so I'll take the opportunity to say that I'm having a book signing in Los Angeles on Saturday, October 7th at 4 o'clock at Esawan Bookstore in the Lamert Park neighborhood of Los Angeles. And so anybody listening to On the Ground uh, should try to show up Saturday at 4 o'clock at Esawan Books in L.A. Okay. All right. So... That's Gerald Hoare, and our geopolitical analyst, prolific author, now more prolific, talking about his two new books, The Rise and Fall of the Associated Negro Press, Claude Barnett's Pan-African News, and The Jim Crow Paradox. The second book, Storming the Heavens. Storming the Heavens. Storming the Heavens. African-Americans in the early fight for the right to fly, published by Black Classic Press in Baltimore, Maryland. Awesome. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guests, Gerald Horn, Harry Amana, and Sharikiana Garima. Thanks to Chantel James for her reporting, and thank you for listening. You can reach On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital, on our website, onthegroundshow.org, where you can listen to all of our shows. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show. I'm Esther Rivera, reminding you as always, keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.